Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, words will be on the screen behind me. Also, in our church app, there is a sermon listening guide, and at the top of that is the scripture that we will be looking at this morning, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Two Clemson University researchers did extensive study on this phenomenon of disinformation campaigns via social media. And they saw this phenomenon of all this disinformation that comes through social media. So they, in an attempt to correct the problem or address it, launched their own campaign called Spot the Troll, where they basically invite users to discern which social media account is authentic and which is fabricated. Their goal is to help people see the markers of inauthenticity. And thus the name of their campaign, Spot the Troll. Troll is uh, it's internet jargon for a person who intentionally stirs things up through erroneous or hateful right, type of propaganda on social media. We live in an age, in a season of disinformation which begs the question, who or what can be trusted? In the age of media spin, in the age of disinformation, what or who can be trusted? Why is the gospel of Jesus Christ relevant in the 21st century? In this, a season of, of disinformation and lack of trust. First, the gospel is relevant because there is a need for truth. Verse one, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Three important words and phrases in this verse. False prophets, spirit, and spirits. First, false prophets. In the immediate context, John is speaking of this group of people who had broken off from this church to start their own fellowship. They claimed to know God. They claimed to be believers. They claimed to be anointed. They claimed to no longer sin. And John says they are false prophets. But even beyond the immediate context, John says many false prophets have gone out into the world. In fact, False prophets 
span the story of the Bible from Old Testament to New. Now, how do the scriptures define a false prophet? Well, first, false prophets appear to be genuine. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So they appear to be genuine. Second, though, by their false teaching, they lead people away from the truth. 2 Peter 2.1. False prophets will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So they appear to be genuine, and then they secretly, under the radar, bring in heresies, false teaching. What that means is that you're not going to recognize whether it's false at first. In other words, it comes in secretly. It appears genuine. Always has some thread of, of, of truth or focus that's good. Right? That's what false prophecy is. Okay, second word, spirit. Spirit. Notice in verse one that John calls these people false prophets, which means they're people. They're flesh and blood. You can touch them, you can see them. But in verse one, he calls them spirits. Right? He says, test the spirits, meaning behind the flesh and blood false prophet is a spirit. Verse 3 says it's the spirit of the Antichrist, which we've seen the spirit of the Antichrist ultimately is the spirit of the devil, of Satan. That behind any kind of false teaching, flesh and blood false teaching, is the Antichrist, is the devil. 2 Corinthians 11 makes this connection. For such men are false prophets, or false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Third word, spirits. Notice John says, test the spirits, plural. He says, many false prophets, plural. In other words, there's not just one version of false teaching or of heresy that gets into the church. There's all kinds of versions. And the reason is because Satan will go to any length and any level to deceive you. He, Satan will put lipstick on a pig. Satan will spray deodorant and perfume on a pig. He will do whatever it takes to deceive you. I mean, think about these people that John is writing to. They're part of this young church that had been split. This group broke off, and they broke off and started their own fellowship. And they were winning people to them. They were claiming to know God at a whole nother intimate level. They were claiming to be anointed. They were claiming to no longer sin. And you can imagine people in this church saying, wow. They know God intimately. They're anointed. They're no longer sinning. I'm still sinning. Maybe there's something to that, right? It's very enticing. False prophecy is very enticing. And just so you don't think this is only a first century problem, this very false teaching, next level knowing of God, anointed, no longer sinning, 
is active a stone's throw from you on the campus of UNF. And it's active in the city of Jacksonville. Let me give you two, let me give you two examples of the activity of false prophets of spirits that are not from God in our culture today. First would be a movement called the Hebrew Roots Movement. Now, some of you may know what that is. Many of you probably don't have any idea what it's about. They're having their annual conference in Jacksonville at the end of June. It's a movement that centers on Jesus, which is why it's so deceptive. And the leaders of this movement claim that contemporary Christians have been absolutely influenced by the evil culture. And so they propose, or they claim, that to really follow Jesus, that you have to live like he did and go back to Hebrew, Jewish roots, first five books of the Old Testament, and follow the law. So they will follow Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night, or they will uh, eat kosher, they will celebrate the Passover, and they point to the gospel when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. But they fail to move Beyond that, to Jesus saying, I came to fulfill the law, as Paul says, to redeem people from the curse of the law and from enslavement to the law. So it's a dangerous movement, and it's attracting many Christians. But it's enslaving people to the law, which Jesus says he came to redeem people from the law. That's one example. Let me give you another example. This is a little bit more, probably a little bit more relevant in our age and our day, and that is the phrase, live your truth movement. Very popular on social media, very popular in bookstores, live your truth. In fact, on Instagram alone, more than one million interactions with it. Now, what does that mean, live your truth? Well, let me give you a couple examples of how it's expressed. Tom is into meditation into some of the Eastern ways of thinking. In his yoga classes, his meditation readings tell him to look within himself and to find his true self. And that when he finds his true self, whatever the true self tells him to do is the path that he should pursue. This is how he will be true to himself and live his own truth. Or Becca feels she has found her truth in the herbs and natural healing products that she makes and sells. They have changed her life. They've given her a sense of purpose, and so she promotes them online. She promotes them through her social media platform. Living healthy through natural medicines and eating more herbs is her truth. Or Bob feels stifled by the church's restrictions on how he lives his life. He sees nothing wrong with the love that he feels for his significant other. His truth is being denied by the suffocating rules and restrictions of his religion, so he finds a different religion, right? One that will approve of what he's doing or at least not criticize him for how he's living his life. And so he has found happiness and fulfillment because there's no condemnation now of the way that he is living his truth. There is a need for truth. This begs the question, though, what is truth? 
and how do you discern it? What is truth and how do you discern it? Verses two and three. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Interesting here how John defines truth. We oftentimes define truth by this static statement of philosophical or doctrinal beliefs. It's just a static statement. That's truth. John defines truth here by a story, by a narrative. Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, the gospel story. When you think about it, all versions of truth are rooted in a story. Consider Christian cults. Consider the doctrines of Mormonism. That Those doctrines of truth find their root in the story of a farm boy named Joseph Smith in the 1820s who claimed to receive a revelation from God. All major world religions have a similar story of beginnings where truth is rooted in a, in a story. Think about the Live Your Truth campaign, hashtag Live Your Truth. Think about Becca, who has found her truth in natural medicine and herbs. Why? Well, probably because at some point in her life, she struggled. And these natural medicines and these herbs helped her out of that struggle. And so that has become her truth. But it's rooted in a, it's rooted in a story. Have you ever met someone who is passionate about something? Really passionate about something? Why are they passionate about that something? Usually because that something has helped them, right? I know people who are very passionate about Enneagrams. Nothing wrong with Enneagrams. It's a personality test. There's hundreds of personality tests. Sometimes I think people are a little too passionate about Enneagrams. In fact, one website that promotes an Enneagram, promotes the test of the Enneagram, the personality test, says this about it. Here was the title. Through Enneagrams, you can become your best self. And then here was the tagline. Spread positive energy. Become a better parent or spouse. Reclaim harmony in your life. Here's my point. Everyone, everyone has a controlling narrative, meaning that everyone is controlled or influenced by a story of some sort. John says there's a story, a narrative that all stories answer to, and that is the story of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Now, the key to that verb to come in verse two is that it's in the perfect tense. 
And that means it's not just describing something that happened in history nearly 2,000 years ago. It's describing the status of Jesus Christ. He did not just come and put on a human being costume for 33 years and then resurrect, ascend into heaven, and take the costume off. It means that he became, he actually became a human being. And that he's still a human being in the unseen realm called heaven, the right hand of the Father, and he will continue to be a human being for eternity in a glorified body. And that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He's fully God and he's fully human. All the attacks in early Christianity, the early centuries, all of the attacks against Christianity were attacks on the identity of Christ, saying that he is not both. He's one or the other. So there were some heresies that said, he's God, but he's not human. Or he is human, but he is certainly not God. There was one that said that he is both, but it, it was that he couldn't be both at the same time or three. So he was God the Father, then he switched into God the Son mode, then he switched into God the Holy Spirit mode. But all the attacks on Christianity are an attack on the identity of Christ. One of the modern day heresies on the identity of Christ, functional modern day heresies, is a focus on Jesus as example, but not Savior. Example, but not Savior. The Hebrew Roots Movement currently is a focus on Jesus as example. Live like he did. Uh, the, the What Would Jesus Do Movement decades ago, same thing. Focus on Jesus as example. And when the heresy of Jesus was just an example to follow comes into play, it, it, it comes in one of two ways. Either it's Jesus is fully God, but when he came to earth, he put on a human being costume, 33 years, and showed us how to live. But then 33 years later, when he rose from the dead and went back into heaven, he took his human being costume off. He's not human anymore. If Christ didn't become fully human and remain fully human today and remain fully human with a glorified body for eternity, then your sin hasn't been removed. One of the early church fathers who was combating this, this false prophecy, this heresy, said, what has not been assumed has not been healed. For your sin to be removed, for you to be saved, Jesus has to be fully human. And not just in his time on earth, but now and for eternity. The other way that this Jesus as example, but not Savior. The other form that it takes is that Jesus wasn't really God, and he isn't really God. He was just a human being. He was a good man who lived a good life that was worthy of emulating. And he showed the supreme example of self-sacrifice by dying to show you how to really sacrifice for people. But he's not God, so he didn't rise from the dead. Here's the problem with that. No mere man, no mere human being can die for the sins of the world. Only a God-man, only God in the flesh can die for the sins of the world and remove the sins of the world. 
Right? So Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he came fully human to save you. And he's coming back again. Is that the controlling narrative of your life? Is that the narrative? Christ's death, resurrection, and return. The narrative that influences and controls your life. If not, what is the narrative? Or what is the story that controls your life? Second question John raises here is, are you listening to people who are proclaiming that narrative about Christ? Right, verses five and six. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. It's about listening, right? We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John says the way that you test whether you're under the guidance of the spirit of God or the spirit of the Antichrist is number one, do you confess and believe that Jesus Christ, fully God, became fully human, is fully human now, and will be fully human for eternity? And are you listening to people that are proclaiming that? In other words, what are you listening to? What narrative is being proclaimed into your heart and your mind and your life that you're listening to? Is it the narrative of Jesus Christ, fully God coming in the flesh? Why is the gospel relevant in the 21st century? There's a need for truth. The story of Christ's coming is the way by which you discern truth and discern error. But third, how do you overcome error? There's a need for truth, you discern truth, but how do you overcome error, which our world and culture is full of? In fact, the, the people that John writes to here, they're in that situation. They're this church that split and this group started this new fellowship and claimed to be Christians and believers and they were winning people to them. And these believers are going, what is happening? How do we overcome this? People are flocking to these people that left us and flocking to this new fellowship. And John, you're telling us that it's false prophecy and it's, it's not true. But how are we to respond in the midst of this? Verse four. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, Jesus, by the Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, the devil. John says to these believers who are wrestling with the forces of evil, you've already won. which is a shocking statement for them to hear as they've watched half their church go out the door and begin going into false prophecy and attracting people to it. The surrounding circumstances are not telling them they've won the day. John says, you've already won. You've already overcome. Why? John turns to the person of Christ because the person of Christ who lives in you is greater than any evil in this world. When he turns to Christ, Jesus actually used this same word, overcome, in John chapter 16, right before he would be crucified. This is what Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, 33. 
in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, these are the words on the lips of a man who had just predicted his imminent death and just confessed the deep trouble of his soul. They're baffling because the words he spoke, I've overcome, seem to contradict the surrounding circumstances because he's about to die. And yet that's the point. Surrounding circumstances don't tell the story. Jesus, on this last evening, the controlling narrative for Jesus was the overarching will of his Father. In the same way for you, that when the surrounding circumstances seem to dictate defeat and loss, the controlling narrative is the death and resurrection of Christ that has already won the day and already defeated error and already defeated evil. And so the way that you overcome is by attaching yourself to Christ, the one, by his, one who by his death and resurrection has already defeated evil and who is working out his victory life by life through you who are indwelled by Christ. The key is understanding how Jesus overcame the world. How did he overcome evil? After he made that statement, I've overcome the world, less than a day later, he'd be hanging on a cross as a criminal, dying a shameful death. Philippians 2 says that Jesus emptied himself, became obedient to death on a cross, even death on a cross, which was a shameful death. Jesus did not win the day by winning an argument. He had plenty of opportunity as he was marched to the cross, as he hung on the cross, he had plenty of opportunity to win an argument. He was mocked, he was rejected, false things were said about him. He won the day by emptying himself. For you, for me, for his enemies. Truth is not a set of abstract principles. Truth is a person, Jesus Christ, and truth is a narrative of what Jesus Christ has done. And so in a world full of competing narratives, in a world that's full of the live your truth, hashtag campaign, the way to overcome error and the way to overcome evil is not to win an argument on social media. It's not even to win a debate. It doesn't mean that you speak truth, but it's not about winning a debate. You overcome evil by attaching yourself to Jesus by faith and therefore him living in you by the Holy Spirit, bringing him into every situation that you empty yourself for the sake of others and for the sake of those who need truth so that Jesus, who's already won, can work out his victory. I want you to imagine that someone has a plastic bucket that is full of toxic water. 
And let's just say this toxic water in this bucket represents error, it represents falsehood, it represents evil. There are two ways that you can get the toxic water out of that person's bucket. The first way that's really efficient but very destructive is to pull out your BB gun and from afar just begin shooting holes in this plastic bucket so that all that toxic water drains out. That imagery of shooting BBs from afar, that's the angry social media post. That's the combative, almost militaristic language to bring truth to people. That's the, the I'm going to win the debate because I've got truth. That, that's, the, that's the approach of the shooting the BB. The other way that you can get rid of the toxic water that's in that person's bucket is by taking a bucket of clean water and pouring it into that bucket. And over time, watching that toxic water transform. Transformation is a process. In the imagery of the bucket of clean water, that, that's Christ. It's, it's Christ's story. It's his truth that lives in you by faith that as you empty yourself relationally into others, Christ over time, through that relationship, through you emptying yourself sacrificially in grace and love, over time, Christ begins to transform that toxicity into his truth, into his healing truth. In his article titled, If You're Fighting the Culture War, You're Losing, Cap Stewart says it well. He says, shouldn't we oppose the evils being spread in our society? The answer is a resounding yes. The deciding factor is the nature of our engagement, the how. Are we seeking to destroy or to rescue our opponent? When we correct or oppose or reprove, is it with the goal of winning the conversation or winning the person? Do we confront others in the right spirit? We are not at war with our ideological opponents. We are at war for them. Let's pray. Father, we confess the ways that we have reduced truth to just a static statement, forgetting that truth, first and foremost, is a person, the person of Christ and his story of leaving glory and putting on flesh and becoming human and remaining human now and forever to heal us and to rescue us. And Father, we ask your forgiveness for the result of treating truth like it is just a static statement. 
We confess the, the BB approach, the combative approach in pride, just wanting to win the argument rather than winning the person. Father, would you call us, empower us to empty ourselves relationally into others so that you, Christ, who live in us, can do your work of transformation over time, bringing your truth into their lives that ultimately will set them free as it has set us free. Father, as we close in worship now, would you help us to sing, to sing truth, to sing of the story, the gospel story of you sending your son to rescue us. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.